Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Tool Belt Podcast, brought to you by Plant Services. I'm Tom Welk, the Chief Editor of Plant Services, and today I'm speaking with Ron Brash, the Director of Cybersecurity Insights at Verve Industrial. Uh, we spoke a few weeks back on what's happening in the world of cybersecurity in the year 2021, and this conversation that took on a certain urgency as last year's data breach of the U.S. federal government came increasingly to light. Okay, well, so we'll start with the first question on the list, and uh, especially in the U.S. here, you know, it, everyone's focusing on the compromise of solar wind. It, it seems like if it's not one compromise, it's another, but this one really caught people's attention. Um, and so cybersecurity is back on people's minds after a lengthy break focusing on COVID. Um, so the question is, when the C-suite comes to visit maintenance and reliability, asking what they are doing right now to prevent or, res- prevent or respond to cyber attacks. Um, what, in your opinion, should maintenance reliability be ready to say? Well, I mean, excluding the solar winds part of that, co- uh, that question, from a generic okay. standpoint, and I'm, I'm saying this with tongue-in-cheek, of course, but the honest answer is we need help. Um, mm. That's not, there's no shame in asking for help. And I think most organizations, especially at the site levels, I mean, I've never, I very rarely have I ever been at a site where the site overseer or the site manager has an inkling about what's going on uh, on the systems that are providing functionality to their process control. Uh, Like I said, very, very rarely. So I think there's no shame in asking for assistance and making it a collaborative effort, to be honest, especially if you inherit those, those assets, right? Like, you know, it's not your fault and you end up owning it and it is what it is. And it's going to, of course, have some very uncomfortable conversations, but if your systems need improved networking investments that obviously can uh, afford better security for today and tomorrow or reliability, ask for it uh, by stating and also by stating the business and security cases to do so. And I think that's also one of the uh, uh, barriers to these conversations in improving OT sites is IT is terrified of that land uh, called OT, right? There's that kind of a joke where, you know, there's a uh, Lion King where, you know, Simba says to his dad, you know, what's over there, and then the person responds, you know, OT's over there, you must not go there, son, kind of conversation. Uh, <laughs> right. That's not what I would I'd wish on people, right? It, it, you need to be honest about it, and, you need, and both groups need to talk about each other. So if your business is, uh, one of our customers is a farm, very large uh, top six pharmaceutical manufacturer, right? So their goal is to produce, um, you know, things such as masks or saline bags, stuff like that, right? And that's their job. So if there's no saline bags being made, then the business isn't generating revenue. So you must, clearly you already have a relationship before you started. It's just about putting that into terms. Now the ops team is going to say, well, my job is just to make sure the conveyor belts keep doing their thing and, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the business side also needs to understand that a downtime equals them not being able to get their, uh, their bonuses at the end of the year because they've had a disruption and then they've lost margins. So there's, there's a, you automatically, you don't realize it, but you're already in bed uh, uh, together already. So it's best to co- communicate on terms that make sense. And I know engineers aren't very good at talking about those type of things in many cases, and some are, and vice versa. But mm-hmm. being honest about the lack of security features or, or having, you know, the processes and procedures to respond in a cyber-related event, especially if they know, like, you know, they're not aware of it, they have no training, 
uh, or maybe they're from a different generation or era where, you know, things were very mechanical and analog. Uh, being honest about things isn't bad. And also being, what's the rest word here put that, but being, you know, uh, strong enough to say, no, I might not know about something, but being taken, proactive about it and, you know, taking charge on it. Like, okay, I've been reading in my spare time and, you know, th- th- there's a different way. There's always two ways to say something. And one is you can be obstinate and, and say, we don't need help. Or you can say, you know, we need help and I want to work with you on it. And it, it you know, it makes everyone open and, and friendly. So by, by doing that, I think uh, generally management is aware that they incur liability and risk by not having securities discussions. And in the past, M&R or whatever that business might use for that terminology uh, hasn't mm-hmm. been a part of those discussions. But if, as you say, in this case, the C-suite does come and come knocking on their door, uh, then it's MNR's responsibility to make sure that the organization is adequately prepared to both manage uh, the systems that are under their purview, but also to help engineer out the risks that affect the business uh, for those same systems under their purview. So I think, I think there's a, a good conversation that can be had there in a proactive way uh, and I and I don't think any C-suite or management would be uh, would be avoidance in that discussion because nowadays there's no excuse for C-suites and, and boards to not be aware of uh, of those issues. Now I do recognize that saying that we need help sometimes might result in a few jobs being lost. Don't get me wrong, um, mm-hmm. but the, the idea of we need help it shouldn't be a rear end uh, covering discussion. And the solution is not to get a checkbox. It's it's mm-hmm. so M&R gets the visibility of their issues and their challenges to ma- up to the management level. And also uh, by, by doing so, then being able to look for support by management to resolve those issues. So um, in, my, in my notes, I put, uh, I don't like the word convergent, but this is mm-hmm. where worlds collide, right? If you can proactively find solutions collaboratively together, you're going you're gonna to fare well, uh, at least in theory. Uh, and I found that at a personal level and, and in a business. So um, that's, that's how I would look at it. Uh, in extension to that, some organizations might also have done good work in some areas, right? So if you've acquired some assets that were from a very mature organization, right, like you bought a site or a business unit, and then you inherited some other ones that aren't so good, there's a misconception when people talk about organizations as if they're homogenous, and that's not true. And business units are definitely not homogenous. I can think of many industrial vendors who make some very good products and some very not good products, and they're under very different business units or even acquired businesses. So M&R as a whole is not homogenous too. So it's important to look at individual concerns, not just uh, looking at things holistically across the organization and say, oh, well, you know, we're at a you know, maturity level of this. No, that's not true because your other risky assets potentially could be far less mature. Um, and, and you might look at, you know, some organizations look at things purely at a revenue generation capability, but that's not how it should be. So uh, by having a discussion about where some of those risks are with management between that M&R conversation, uh, management, yes, they may choose to completely sell off that set of assets because of an inherited risk. Mm. But also conversely, M&R might be in hot water if management finds out that uh, M&R and management hadn't done their due diligence after an incident occurs because they have no insurance coverage. So right. it definitely would be a spicy conversation. So I think honesty and, and uh, not just putting up walls is the best approach, but I think collaboratively taking down those walls in a divide and conquer fashion uh, 
is the right way to go. That's a really interesting take because it, it aligns with one of the things we're hearing about maintenance reliability team in general, especially maintenance, which is that you've got this veteran core that is slowly retiring. And over the past, say, five, six years, we've been following that workforce issue closely. And it looks like a lot of teams, they aren't giving up finding people, but I think they've realized that the time to have all knowledge that required to get the job done on your full-time staff may be over. And so they're, they're very willing to partner out to fill these sort of areas where they would need support and need a partner to get things done. Um, are you seeing that too? Yeah, I've seen that, and I'm not sure if it's for the right reasons. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of discussions about why certain systems can't be maintained easily anymore, right? Because the, those individuals mm-hmm. have left, uh, organizations, right. skeleton crews exist only, uh, Bob or Jane might be dead. Um, you know, there's all sorts of uh, theories on that and, and workforce issues. I know Alberta had some issues several years back where they had a, uh, an aging workforce that was rapidly retiring, and they couldn't balance mm-hmm. it out. It turns out they could get through those issues by increasing investments in automation and all of the things right. that supported that with a modernization. So I do think organizations will find solutions. I, I actually don't think there's a, a shortage of individuals for a workforce in general. I mean, this is a bit of an offshoot for that conversation. But I do mm-hmm. think there's a shortage of capable individuals in general in today's society, and that is where the deficit is. Now, some people think when they go to university that makes them entitled. Uh, I don't. But what, mm-hmm. I, what I do think is I saw an interesting strategy done by a very, very large airport in the UK, and I had some interesting discussions with a CISO there. And he was discussing about flight ops. And he said their average age of their security team for that airport was 23 years old. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's really young, Interesting. right? Because, you know, usually you finish your bachelor's at 23 years old or ish, plus or minus. Well, what he was saying was they went back to an old school way of apprenticeshipping. And they were picking up individuals, uh, you know, in their high school years, probably some sort, of, some sort of program with high schools. And they were getting individuals at 16, 17 years old and sort of training them as they're going through, through things. So they grabbed them earlier, and they were able to teach them the skills early on when they're, they were far more flexible uh, and maybe mm-hmm. not poisoned by the educational system or by society. And so they actually overcame a lot of those obstacles, and they were able to get more knowledge in-house uh, rapidly, cheaper, uh, and through the investment of people. And I thought that was a very interesting take to balance some of those, uh, some of those changes. It is. It really is. Um, well, let me shift to a slightly more technical area, uh, the, the discussion of these teams who are being asked to tie in OT into the cloud versus uh, air gapping strategies, which a lot of our folks might be more familiar with. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on how people are balancing this, this trend to, to move more OT systems into the cloud or at least network connected versus uh, air gapping? Interesting. Okay, so I have, I have a few takes on that, and hopefully they'll all make sense. Um, there's a couple mm-hmm. threads here. So in your question, you used the word balancing air gapping versus the benefits of keeping systems on-prem or in the cloud. Um, right. Balancing is an interesting choice of words because I don't think there actually is a balance uh, discussion going on consciously. Um, okay. I, I argue that the openness and interoperability of systems uh, that was all the rage in the 80s and 90s is winning the battle 
because systems of today have changed, right? They didn't come with Ethernet cards back in the day. They had serial or didn't even have that, right? They were on some sort of coaxial bus or something. And today they all, mm-hmm. you know, they all have IP addresses. So I think by de facto, that's just the way it is, right? When you go buy a car nowadays, it has Bluetooth. That's just the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. If you bought a car 10 years ago, it didn't have Bluetooth. I think it's a similar uh, paradigm change, whether we like it or not. I think the cloud will come. Um, I'm a bit of a, a pundit for saying let's not go to the cloud today, um, but I acknowledge that it's going to occur, and I do see the benefits of it. I do mm-hmm. see there's an increase of interconnected systems, whether locally or in a distributed multi-site design. And mm-hmm. I am seeing less and less islands. So clearly the air gapping strategy is going away because people are seeing it as more of a pain. And especially with uh, COVID-19 focuses on increasing revenue and decreasing costs, uh, it makes sense that you would see that, right? Um, right. And, I, and, and that's not to say that uh, everyone should get rid of all their islands. I think there is a place for islands. Um, you know, especially when you can't do anything about a particular type of system, or it's very, very, uh, very, very important that it maintains a certain level of integrity. You don't m- maybe want networking on it, right? If you're dealing with a safety instrumentation system. But um, generally, I found when people or organizations and sites use islands and even data diodes, uh, they're using it as a cop out for performing electronic maintenance. So, you know, upgrades and patching of systems, right? They say, oh, we've got a diode, that's fine, leave it alone. Um, we, don't need, we don't need that upgrade. Uh, that will just only cause us headaches. And so I do see when people look at using I, uh, islands and diodes, they actually are promoting more negative behaviors that put the organization at risk. So what that means is um, often you'll see people put like a diode at the edge of a, a manufacturing cell. And then what will happen is, okay, well, I need to get around that diode. And a diode is a one-way communication device. And you'll see people, okay, well, what they'll do around that is I need to make changes. Okay, so I go over there with a transient laptop. uh, Or I go with a USB stick to push updates and make changes. And this leads to unsafe behaviors uh, and also control bypasses, right? So the concept of you put in a diode to control traffic, but I just went around it and I did all the bad things I shouldn't do. There's another risk there that if you, if you follow that same design uh, paradigm, you actually will wind up with an increased risk of a distributed infection. So what that means is, and if you're looking at the solar winds issue, uh, there was basically a delayed fuse, right? It would wait for 14 or 15 days before it activated. That mm-hmm. is a very common strategy in malware where you know, it goes in, it lays low, and then it comes to life. So if you have right. that same transient laptop go to all of your lines, it might wait and they all go down at the same time and you would never have known that. So I, I do think there's a time and a place for, for air gapping, but the mm-hmm. risks of, of you know, uh, someone doing something they shouldn't be doing or, or, or as a consequence of that, of that security uh, convenience and cost triangle, I think there's, that needs to be balanced out at, in long term. Now, on to cloud and on-prem systems, uh, many organizations and especially processes are not geared for these things. Mm -hmm. Sure, you can put telemetry, SAP, historians, uh, logging servers, and maybe even some of your Microsoft Active Directory systems in the cloud, sure. But there's Mm -hmm. no way you can put physical inputs and outputs for, let's say, a conveyor belt or a stop or counters or whatever in the cloud. It it will not work because it can't. Now, what I do think is 
hybrid or eventual cloud infrastructure will eventually arrive, but it uh. will be a monolithic shift in infrastructure required to support that paradigm change. So for example, uh, I was in Japan last year as part of the U.S. Joint Warfare Exercise, um, weirdly enough, as a, as a Canadian. And so I met a bunch of in creative individuals that were uh, from ISA, you know, International Society of Automation. And mm -hmm. uh, we went over there as part of a, as a kind of a group collective. And then there was also a gentleman you might know of, Andy from INL, Andy Bachman. And he's uh, a well-known figure in the space. And so when we went over to Japan, um, they were discussing about how they were putting a big portion of their, or were planning to put a big portion of their OT infrastructure, uh, especially the, the SCADA and you know monitoring aspects of it into the cloud. And when you think about it, okay, you're like, wow, that's so far ahead of what you know what North America is doing and potentially even parts of Europe. But mm -hmm. there's a fundamental difference between North America and Japan, where Japan has fiber optics to everyone's mm. curb. That is not the case in the United States, nor is it in Canada. And so, of course, you might think, well, that will come, but it, but it, it won't. And the costs for doing so, uh, especially with the, the price of broadband and communication, is really expensive. And so I don't see that coming uh, quite so rapidly as it maybe would in, in the Asian countries, like Singapore, for example. It would make sense that they could do it, but maybe not us. Um, so concurrently along those same lines, uh, as a stopgap, I'm actually starting to see more and more virtualization at the site level. And to me, that is a fundamental change, not only for, uh, uh, for it being a stepping stone to the eventual cloud move, right? Because cloud virtualization, they're, they're kind of the same. Uh, but B, it decreases physical depend uh, hardware dependencies and promotes recovery and res resiliency. And it also offers you uh, digital twin testbed opportunities. And so as a hybrid shift to a cloud, or some people call it a fog, right? So it's an on-prem right. pseudo cloud thing. I, I see virtualization as that way to get to that. Uh, and I, I will keep, continue to keep promoting that for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons actually is, let's say you have a Windows XP machine that doesn't require specialized hardware but you still need Windows XP because of some ancient software that you're running. Well, virtualize it and tombstone the hardware, and now you get a whole bunch of things basically for free, right? Uh, image restorations at midnight, uh, you know, on demand. You, you get so many things. And, and that, I see, is the, the, big, the big plus uh, as starting to move towards that kind of hybrid on-prem cloudy thing, right? But... Um, there was having another discussion recently with uh, Sarah Flukes uh, from, from Admiria in Germany, and we were discussing about, um, besides this uh, on-prem versus cloud thing, I do think many organizations will choose uh, eventually to want to wish to have kept systems on-prem, at least virtualized or, or whatever, and even maybe essentially in the cloud. Because that gives the organization, uh, gives them back control away from the vendors. And that, that is something I think is going to be an interesting concept because of lock-in in the future. But if you tightly couple your systems, uh, especially your, your process-related systems, to cloud components, you, forget, you forgive your, uh, your flexibility to choose when changes will occur. And so uh, instead of 
you know, especially when OT makes very selective changes in investments for various reasons. But instead of making those selective changes in investments, you'll wind up with wholesale forklift changes. And that might work well for IT where your lease of laptops uh, comes up and everybody gets a new laptop every three years. You don't do that with turbines and you don't do that with systems that control them or you, you, know, you don't do that with a system, especially with systems that are high volume but low margin. You don't do those things. And so mm-hmm. when you're dealing with OT, uh, if you're not doing selective change, your change management, your budgeting, your scheduling of downtime, it's, all not, it's just not going to work for that, for that mindset. And, and ultimately, I think if, if organizations are not uh, able to secure systems locally, the move to the cloud is only going to put them at further risk. Even though it will be an eventuality, um, you're probably not ready for that change yet. So it's best to keep systems on-prem and secure them first, and then look at that transition later where, where it makes sense. Okay. Um, now, I, I appreciate the depth of the answer because it really does chart out for our readers what the issues are uh, in, in this area and, and what their options are, including virtualization as, as, the, as an emerging solution. Um, shifting to response plans, let's say when an incident does occur, you know, the people I've talked to, uh, they've, sometimes they've been, they've been caught off guard by a phishing attack uh, or some other attack that resulted in a ransomware situation. And um, people in some cases have raised their hands and said, yeah, they had to rebuild the server um, in, in, in some cases. So can you talk about the elements of a solid response plan to a cyber attack? Sure. Um, yeah, so let's say it was ransomware. Um, no plan should have payment or ransom, period. It's uh, mm-hmm. bad because you can't guarantee that the attacker won't come back and extort you further. Um, mm-hmm. So you should almost always expect to have a rebuild and you should have processes around uh, making a hasten rebuild de facto. Uh, ransomware doesn't necessarily have to be about extortion as well. It can be about, uh, or rather, an activity to hide or misdirect attention from other activities. So what you need to assume in a cyber-related incident, such as a, a phishing attack that delivers uh, some sort of malicious payload, or a ransomware that, that encrypts a system, uh, you need to assume that that asset, once compromised, it's toast. And so by toast, it doesn't necessarily mean that the hardware has to go into the destruction pile where you throw it into a vat of acid or bang it with sledgehammers so it sounds like a pair of maracas. Um, it, it just means that in any event where the integrity of a system is directly affected or the adjacent systems potentially are in question, you have to measure the potentiality of a compromised reoccurrence due to persistent access methods that an attacker might have placed on your system. So what that means is um, they might, their intention might not have been just to ransom you. Their intention might have been for you to restore a backup, and that backup is infected potentially as well with something. So you need to do a little extra due diligence. From a general standpoint, though, a solid response plan uh, expects the prerequisite of a well-defined and tested recovery and vulnerability management combo strategy, especially one that scales uh, when under pressure. So rebuilding one system at a time isn't a big deal, but rebuilding mm-hmm. a whole bunch of systems at, at a time, at any given time, especially when, you know, you're under pressure, that's the bigger issue here. Um, very, you know, it's, I, it's not, not uncommon for me to say, or to hear, you know, some site manager say, or a site technician say, oh, I just rebuilt a system a while back because the hard drive failed. This isn't much different than that. The only difference is that 
you know, they probably had other systems up and running and covering uh, that system, right? So, mm. but when you have, when you deal with ransomware, uh, uh, you know, or even a hardware failure, you need to do a recovery. But when it, when it is malware related, surely it's probably going to affect more than a single system. And generally, you're going to need to rapidly correct the flaws that allowed the attacker in. You're going to need to archive the system images for forensic, forensics and posterity, at least. Uh, you're going mm-hmm. to have to restore and update software. You're going to have to reset credentials. Uh, and then you're going to ultimately get thing, have to get things operational. And, but nonetheless, though, all of those things I just mentioned are capable for, or are good opportunities for proceduralization. For, for testing, you know, end-to-end of those procedures and the, and the people, uh, but mm-hmm. also they're enforceable through, through drills ahead of an incident, right? We do, I don't know how often you've been to a site, but, you know, every Wednesday at 2 o'clock or whatever, you often will have a fire drill or a fire system test. This is no different. And if people started looking at cyber as just one of the things that they have to deal with, like a system failure, and treated it as such, uh, then, then you're going to get all the benefits out of it and you're going to be able to recover faster. Uh, a friend of mine, once, you know, you might even know her, Megan Sanford, uh, who's now at Schneider Electric, she once said to me, a dollar up front in emergency planning can save $4 later. Now, I know she took that from some study somewhere, but it's very true. And, and this is something that, you know, any manager uh, or a person responsible for M&R should be uh, at least conscious of, right, because, you know, there is proactive things you do. Um, you know, restoring mm-hmm. pumps or replacing pumps or impellers. Uh, you do those things at certain runtime hours and, and you plan for a failure. That's just part of what you do. Mm-hmm. But all the while, I think there's an important piece there of a, of a response strategy is uh, organizations in the past have made some big oopses. And they made some of those big oopses by allowing IT security to manage the recovery efforts, especially when you're re-operationalizing re-oper- a plant. And if you don't have operations uh, as a key driving force uh, in cases where you have SRP, what I call safety, reliability, and productivity, uh, mm-hmm. and you don't have those ops people driving it, uh, you're going to basically wind up with cases where you could actually put health and safety at risk, um, but also wind up with a delayed recovery. So you need to keep those people involved, and that's good news. Um, but ultimately, as I said also, when systems fail, uh, they don't fail one at a time in a ransomware type mm. attack. They fail several mm-hmm. at a time. And so you also need to make sure that whatever your recovery strategy is, it can scale to multiple systems at once. So that might mean multiple people. That might mean automation technology. But it also means you have the network bandwidth to restore several systems at once too. So it's, uh, it's a bit different than everyone else says uh, when they think of just a process. It's it's a bunch of things, and you need to really stress test it. Um, but... I know, I know what I'm saying sounds like a lot, but I, I think there's an important piece here. Is ransomware is the attack of today. Uh, viruses, you know, in their traditional sense, were an attack of, you know, the early 2000s. But if you were to plan for virus recovery in the 2000s, you're probably going to be pretty well recovered for ransomware today. So what that's telling you is many of those elements I'm talking about are reusable, and mm-hmm. you can also maintain them for other events. It's not a cost sink. It's something that can be leveraged for any cyber-related incident, whether it's a physical failure or not, or a cyber disaster, uh, such as a, you know, a wholesale ransomware fire sale. But the strategies that we're talking about can they also carry forward for physical disaster recovery, such as fires and floods, where you lose your whole, uh, you lose something you know, wholesale. 
and you need to recover rapidly uh, in the future to start generating revenue again. So I think, I think there's also a positive there that if you didn't have those things in place yesterday, you can benefit from them to, for today and also for tomorrow in many, many instances. And, and that's something I think most cyber people don't think about. Okay. That's a really good point. It, it, it lines up with a lot of the way uh, our, our readers think about uh, their regular PM routes. If they're going to check the pump and, again, replace the pump either on uh, based, based on uh, uh, usage or, or based on uh, some other timeline, um, there's a parallel there in, in, in building in system checks to, in, in, in much the same way. Sorry to interrupt you, but most organizations no, already have processes, as you said. And so cyber, mm-hmm. tagging in cyber in there and piggybacking them isn't a big deal to me. Yeah. That's, that's how I look at it. It's just, a, it's just a modification effort and also a testing effort. As well, and this, this is a uh, just a hunch on my part based on some conversations I've had. But I would think that newer workers to this field, especially under 30s, would be surprised if there wasn't this kind of process in place for for cyber. Given that you know we, we've got we've got the digital generation now entering the workforce, um, and so uh, PMs without those kind of uh, uh, aspects would, would raise eyebrows. It, you, um, you would you think that, um, and I, I would yeah. surmise something similar, but mm-hmm. uh, I've been in a few facilities where a lot of engineers, you know, around my age or around that 30 age, they didn't mm-hmm. learn these concepts in school, um, mm-hmm. and they don't, for some reason, I don't know why they don't maybe have the common sense, although I guess if I have to question common sense, it's probably not common, um, mm-hmm. but I, they don't seem to have that awareness. Uh, unless maybe they've read it, they heard about it in the news, um, maybe they think it's someone else's problem, I don't know. But that also demonstrates that there's an issue with the educational system where these elements are being left out of the curriculum. And so for publications such as yourself or for engineering institutions and associations and you know all of those things, they also too need to help their uh, members be aware of the right things and also to, you know, bring that, bring those questions into organizations. And, and I think there's a lot of work that could be done there too. All right. Well, let's move to the last question then, which is really on supply chain. Um, you know, we've, we've got a lot of supply chain professionals who need plant services and um, the COVID-19 has been testing supply chain resiliency around the world and in, in, in it, there's a parallel there in the way that cyber attacks test the resiliency of industrial network systems. Would you say that the uh, supply chain in general has passed the stress test of COVID-19? And sort of related, how vulnerable do you think the supply chain is these days to cyber attacks? Sure, sure. So um, a lot of that's dependent on where you are in the world and what you need, right? Uh, so. Mm-hmm. I, I would, and then excluding software supply chain, so that's another issue altogether. But if you're asking, you know, what is the test and what are the measurements on it, so I, I kind of converted it to a GSBF, good, satisfactory, barely or fail um, mm-hmm. ranking system. And so if I were to use that same scale, I believe depending on where you are and what that chain is, we are at the line mm-hmm. between barely and satisfactory in terms of this, uh, the results that we see. Right. You know, in other words, I order my package, it arrives at my door or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's food in the grocery store. So I guess it's okay. Right. There might be delays, but I guess it's okay. Uh, Or maybe, you know, the stock isn't quite as up to par as it should be. Now, for essentials, it seems that the big organizations are pulling through this. um, But there's a cost, I think. 
people get tired, people get sick, and systems break. So for, for those of us uh, that have been around, you know, cars, you don't run a car at redline for an extended period of time uh, because things will quickly degrade and, and degrade at a, at a rate that was much uh, quicker than anticipated, and eventually things will get hot and fail or break, right? Um, so right. I suspect that as this, you know, the lockdowns keep occurring and people get tired and, and you know, uh, stuff like that, or maybe you skip a maintenance cycle because you're trying to churn out as much toilet paper or, you know, personal uh, health and protection and safety devices, uh, things are going to start to break sooner than later um, because of that. Mm. Or what will happen is well, we'll get through this outage, and then because we've skipped all those maintenance cycles, a whole bunch of bad things and catastrophic failures are going to occur after the fact. Right. So I think while operations are still occurring, uh, you know, reasonably well, uh, even though it's at a reduced level and we're getting our packages, I think we're missing the behind the scenes part. And before COVID, most industrial process equipment in general is, was, is and was poorly protected. Uh, and it was designed also on a model that was uh, for previous generations, but doesn't work well in a modern digital age. So for example, if we're talking about electronic system maintenance, uh, generally there's a mindset of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Uh, mm-hmm. Or better yet, people thought of a concept of multiple redundant lines would help you in, the, in a physical failure event. But if you look at things from an electronic perspective, uh, when something goes sideways, and surely it will, um, there is zero technological diversity in place to prevent all of the manufacturing u- unit cells or lines from being brought down by a single weaponized approach that would target all lines, right? Right. So I, I do think uh, the whole system is very, very fragile. And if, you know, a, an HSE, a health, safety, and environment event occurred, you know, was it your biggest nightmare? Right now you're playing yeah. cyber roulette, even though it looks like you're still getting your packages. Um, so that's kind of uh, how I think about it. I think, I think it's working, but I do think that we're going to incur future costs uh, as an unintended consequence, especially for maintenance. So to summarize off what I'm trying to say, I guess, I guess it's like a, we are in a fragile state. And as uh-huh. the expression goes, I once heard, uh, if you hold too many books at, at once, and especially when someone adds one more to the pile, then you drop the ball. And I fear that if we are over-reliant on these book carriers, uh, who may be mm-hmm. few and far, far in between, uh, especially as organizations focus on decreasing overhead and focus on revenue generation, I think uh, when a few of those uh, links in the chain start to, start to snap or be fatigued, the whole system or, or parts of the system will collapse. Um, and so... That, that's kind of my, my, my mindset on it. I do think uh, we haven't done enough to promote uh, resiliency uh, with respect to industrial control systems and op- operational technology. Uh, but that's, that's just my, my sense from all of the sites I've ever been to.